0: Hi, I'm Sam Fesich from the EduMagic Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
1: Again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest this week is Michael Horn, a best-selling author who's one of the nation's leading experts on how to create student-centered schools through disruptive innovation, online learning, blended learning, and competency-based assessment. Tech and Learning Magazine has named him to its list of the 100 most important people in the creation and advancement of the use of technology in education. Michael Horn is the author of numerous books and articles on education, including the award-winning book, Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, and the Amazon bestseller, Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools. His newest book is out now. It's titled Choosing College, How to Make a Better Learning Decision Throughout Your Life. You can purchase all of Michael's books at his website at michaelbhorn.com. You can also find the books wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. And don't forget, folks, you can sign up for our new e-newsletter. Just go to my Twitter page at Dr. Greg Goins to find the link. My conversation with Michael Horn begins right now hello again everyone and welcome to another episode of the reimagined schools podcast so excited today to have a special guest with us who's an expert in blended learning and all things about how to create better schools for kids michael horn is with us how are you michael
0: i'm good i'm thrilled to be with you today
1: it is such a tremendous honor to have you with us uh best-selling author of books like Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools. You have a new book out now about choosing college, how to make better learning decisions throughout your life, and uh, we'll give you a chance to talk about that throughout the podcast. But I've heard you speak several times, never in person unfortunately, but I've had uh, great opportunities to listen to your work online, and you're an advocate of course for student-centered schools, but I love it when you talk about Uh, this idea of developing the passion and potential in every child. When did that become the mantra for Michael Horn?
0: Yeah, you know, it's something that it's developed over time. I think very early on when we were writing Disrupting Class, the first book I wrote with Clay Christensen and Curtis Johnson, uh, we had this notion that it's really helping children develop themselves uh, and and fulfill their potential. But then uh, I was actually giving a talk in Middletown, New York, uh, several years ago, around the time blended came out and the superintendent at the time there he uh he he was giving a talk as well and and he he made this point that we're not born with passions and we don't naturally become passionate about something it's not preordained that you'll be passionate about something it's something that you build over time as a as a child and as an adult and so forth and so it really honed in my idea this notion of building passions which means this intentional curation of discovery opportunities, right? To, to figure out what do I like and, and, and can I grow into something that I love? Uh, and then fulfilling potential as you discover what you're passionate about.
1: You know, I was so excited when I was able to get you to come on the podcast because obviously this, this show is about reimagining schools. And I think we have very similar philosophies in this idea that schools were not built for learning. And I've heard you talk about the Swiss cheese problem. And, you yeah. know, we're, we're still stuck in this industrialized model, and that status quo is just holding on tight, and we just can't seem to break through.
0: Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, look, people don't generally step back from this. I remember talking to some of my family members uh, in 2007 or so when I was writing Disrupting Class and making this point that schools weren't built for learning. And they were sort of, of course they were. What else were they built for? And, And you realize they were built for lots of things, but optimizing learning for every single child was just not high on the list, right? And so When you step back and realize they weren't designed with that in mind, a lot of their shortcomings make a lot more sense in the sense that we batch students up, as you said, in the industrial model based on their age. uh, And then we uh, march them through a sequence of learning and regardless of how they do, they get to come out the other side and they keep on making progress as long as they do you know, good enough, basically. But as a result of that, students develop all sorts of holes in their learning, uh, what educators call the Swiss cheese problem. And then you get this uh, output at the end where students are highly variable in their learning, huge gaps, they haven't had time to figure out who they are as people. And we get subpar results uh, for the individuals, but frankly, in this knowledge economy today for, for the nation as well.
1: Yeah, and, and I love it when you use that terminology, the knowledge economy. And and I've been saying this for a while now. You know, we have all the information we need in the palm of our hand. And as we think about that, I mean, if you can ask Siri or ask Alexa a question, it probably wasn't a very good question if you're a classroom teacher. So if we have all this if we have all this information at the palm of our hand, how do you see the role of the classroom teacher changing to know really take advantage of this knowledge economy that we're in today
0: yeah so it it turns out of course that students still need to learn knowledge because that's how you develop skills like critical thinking and problem solving right off of those but that therein lies the uh opportunity you can use technology to really do the delivery if you will of the knowledge piece and by the way pitched at the right level for each individual child And then the teacher gets the opportunity to help shape and design those sequences and so forth. But more importantly, do something with it. That means apply it in really rich projects, uh, application of why does this matter, interesting problems in your society, figuring out how you can contribute as an individual, uh, you, you know, using this knowledge and really developing the full taxonomy, you know, we always talk about Bloom's taxonomy. Uh, oftentimes, historically, teachers could only get to the base level, which is an important level. But if you stop there, it's incomplete. The really cool thing with all this technology that can do the knowledge is now teachers are freed up to, to uh, focus on the other levels that are so important to human development.
1: And obviously, uh, you're an expert on blended learning and, uh, you know, blended learning is something that's been around for a long time. But what Mm -hmm. I find fascinating, and I certainly want your take on this, if I ask 10 different teachers to define blended learning, I'm probably going to get 10 different answers. But the one thing that we do know for sure is just because you have a one-to-one program in your classroom, just because all your students have iPads or Chromebooks, that's not what blended learning looks like. So I'll kind of let you take it from there.
0: Yeah you know an important part of the definition of blended learning from our perspective was that students get control over some elements of the time place path and pace of learning meaning that it really shifts it into the student-centered or student even driven in some cases uh, model uh, where where it's not all of us advancing in lockstep uh, like a traditional classroom and it's going beyond that whole class instruction model. I, I found it interesting I was with some teachers earlier this week in fact and Uh, One of them said to me, well, blended learning is such a narrow vision because it's just about putting a computer out there for the test at the end of the unit. And I was like, no, that's not at all what blended learning is. That's just technology for testing. Uh, You know, blended learning is really the shifting of the pedagogy itself uh, to put the student in control of their learning and to try to pitch it. Uh, So that they're in their zone of proximal development. There's been a lot of great research over the last several years uh, around how we motivate students the most and how uh, they they best learn. And it turns out that when you're in this uh, 85% right 15% wrong zone. Is your ideal learning uh zone, if you will so you're you're making a mistake fifteen percent of the time on on a problem you haven't quite mastered it it's still sufficiently interesting, but it's not so hard that you're just not getting the actual lessons out of it or tuning out because you're concluding that you're uh, not getting it and that's really the power of blended learning is to make that shift uh, so that the student uh, and what they need is in charge
1: and and you know really um blended learning is about personalized learning. So that's the next place we can kind of go and talk. And I've heard you say that personalized learning is not a noun. Um, It's not a thing. It's a verb. It's an action item. And so I I think also people have a little bit of difficulty separating blended learning from personalized learning. They think if they just roll out the, the Chromebook, they're doing good things. But it has to be about that personalized journey for each individual student.
0: Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, you obviously know my work better than I do. Uh, so I'm blown away right now. But the uh, it's exactly right. You know, there's been this huge trend around personalized learning, quote unquote, and then everyone's been fighting to define it. And really, I think what we care about is personalizing, as you said, uh, in the right way at the right time for each individual, such that they can build passion, fulfill potential, and and be a successful human being and lead a good life, right? It's not personalization for its own sake. And I would argue, uh, increasingly, something that I've been thinking a lot about is it's not personalization for its own sake, so it can be passive learning either. It's so that it can be active learning and engage students in actually uh, answering questions, tackling problems, doing projects, and the like. And so... Uh, it, it, you know, I think often some people treat personalized learning as it's sort of an end into unto itself. And, and I think that's wrongheaded. Uh, the way I sort of put it together is we use the blended learning so that we can break some of these trade-offs that we've historically had in classrooms where everyone has had to move at one pace because the teacher was the only ability to deliver and assess uh, knowledge and skills. And so now that technology can play a role in that, Uh, it shifts it such that the teacher frees up their time. That allows students to go at their different paces uh, and so forth. And then the teacher's job is also to make sure that personalization doesn't mean individualization, right? That there's important opportunities To work and collaborate with your peers and other teachers uh, such that you are learning the skills uh, often together. You're getting to teach the skills, which is an important part of learning and you're getting to uh, Learn valuable skills about how you work with others uh, in schools, which you know, historically hasn't always been valued Uh, and and the personalization is really helping us figure out what's the right thing at the right time. And if you just view it as technology, then it becomes this very Uh, bankrupt sort of vision of individualization with just every single student at their computer for large parts of the day, which I I don't think, A, I don't think it'll work because I think students would rebel against that. But B, it's not a very inspiring vision of what learning should look like.
1: And then in my mind, the trifecta to this whole thing, if you start with blended learning, uh, personalized learning being the goal, the next step obviously would be competency-based learning. So those three things really fit together nicely.
0: That's exactly right. It's really a triad, right? We we blend so that we can personalize, and then uh, once we're personalizing, we move into this competency-based or mastery-based learning, where students make progress as they demonstrate mastery of a given competency or standard, etc. And so that's not to say that you might spiral back and you know to to standards you haven't fully mastered yet, and. And it might be jagged in certain ways. But the point is, I'm not going to say, hey, you didn't master double-digit addition. We're never coming back to that again because you got 70% and that's good enough. No, we're going to say you're going to eventually master it. And that's not a concept you're going to leave until you've fully shown that mastery. And then we're going to keep progressing uh, so that that the building blocks are not absent uh, from from your learning trajectory, right? And and competencies, uh, I, I believe, ultimately should be Defined in a way that's binary. You either have mastered it or you're not, and in which case you're going to keep working on it at some point until you do.
1: And I think that's well said, and I couldn't agree more. Um the other thing that fascinates me a great deal is when we talk about innovation. And again, Mm -hmm. if I ask 10 different people to define what innovation is, you're going to get a lot of different answers. And uh probably the best answer I ever got was from Ted Dinnersmith, executive director of the great film most likely to succeed. And, and Ted quite simply said, I can't define it, but I know what it looks like when I see it. So <laughs> if, if we start there, uh, I've heard you talk about innovation theory, and that kind of got mm-hmm. the juices flowing. But more particularly, I, uh, you talk a lot about disruptive innovation. So this innovation yeah. piece is, is a huge part of this, but we still have a hard time defining what that looks like.
0: Totally, totally. And and, and a couple of thoughts on that. One, I think innovation is actually one of these phrases that people often mistake for the ends as well, right? With that, with that the purpose is innovation. No, no, no. Innovation is something you do so that, right, students can succeed. Uh, and in my mind, innovations are both big and small and they're all important, right? So innovation is almost improvement. There's not that much different. It's just trying new things to be able to advance uh, the state of practice uh, to better serve kids in this case. And uh, there's some innovations that I said are just modest improvements to what you're doing today. And there's some uh, that are breakthrough improvements. And then there's this third category, disruptive innovation, which essentially it's it's the most misused phrase, I think uh, possibly in the world these days. But what we mean by it is just simply an innovation that brings something more affordable, convenient, accessible, and simple to people who didn't have access to it before. Uh, And so disruptive innovations, for example, uh, get their start in schools where you don't have access to say a physics uh, teacher. Or they get their start where you don't have access to maybe lab equipment or something like that. And they figure out a new way to do something Uh, such that people that that didn't have access to something now do. Uh, And and the way I think about it is we're not disrupting schools or or trying to do disruptive innovation to schools. We're really trying to do disruptive innovation to tutoring so that every single child can have uh, the benefits of what a tutor brings to those who are fortunate enough to be able to afford uh, one. Uh, We're trying to leverage it so that every child has that uh, benefit.
1: You know, I think the good news is, as I look around the educational landscape, I do see schools trying to become more innovative and try different things. You know, design thinking is now becoming more and more popular in the school setting. Mm Project-based learning has really caught fire. Um, But I think the good thing about blended learning is those things are all really embedded in those different design thinking principles.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is really a complimentary story, right, that if we free up time Uh, Through blended learning, because we're pitching the knowledge and skill development at the right level for each child. We've just created a lot more time where now they can apply it through projects. Uh, You can think about design thinking, frankly, as the construct through which you design the right environment for your particular school. And this is an important point, which is there's a lot of different ways to do blended learning. There's a lot of different ways to do project based learning. There's going to be no one size fits all way to do this across America, let alone the world. And so each schooling community should be using a design thinking process to figure out what's the right way for us to do it, given our students and their needs and, and the community from which they come. And we'll, we'll come up with different answers. And I believe that as we do that, uh, as educators do that, they'll model this sort of uh, thinking for students, which uh, embeds failure in the process. And we know we learn from failure, but The problem right now is failure in schools comes with high stakes and and you don't learn when that's the case. So if we can embed it in a low stakes way through a design thinking process where you're trying something, you're testing it, you're learning from it, and then you're reflecting on that experience and then, you know, doing it again, right? Uh, I think that is a wonderful thing and and, uh, wonderful competency for educators to develop. And it's a wonderful competency uh, to help students develop so that they have these skill sets for when they leave school.
1: You know, in both of your books, uh, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns and Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools, you really take a deep dive, not only into what blended learning is, but what it looks like. And there, mm-hmm. you, you referenced a lot of different rotation models. Uh, people are familiar with flip learning. But, I, I mean, it's really a uh, systematically, it's, it's just a change uh, in the approach and how you provide classroom instruction.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, ultimately, the technology is a tool. It's not your master, right? And and, and if it's your master, you got problems. <laughs> but uh, you really want to use it as an approach to accomplish things that are meaningful to the teacher and what you're trying to do with the students. And so Uh, For example, you you mentioned the rotation models, and and I know people out there that are like, well, this is no different from centers-based learning that have been in elementary schools for years, where students rotate among different activities uh, in a given day, and you're like, yeah, that's exactly right. It's not that big a difference. We've just made one of the stations an online learning station, and that does some cool things because the program uh, isn't babysitting the children anymore. It's uh, giving them the right learning at the right time, and it creates data for the teachers so that they can be doing very thoughtful groupings and regroupings constantly so we're no longer tracking students but we're basically saying gee you know i want to do a small group lesson with this set of children today and i want a homogenous group say of, of, of children who are all at the same roughly level so that we can have a certain discussion or i want a heterogeneous group with people all over the place and levels so that we can have a robust discussion and help unearth some misconceptions maybe that they have right and so Basically, it's just allowing you to do a lot of the things you were doing before, but do them even better. It's putting it on steroids and improving it. And and I've heard many teachers and, and school principals tell me, you know, the reason, Michael, we went to blended learning is we just wanted to figure out how can we have smaller group time consistently with students and teachers, essentially lower the student teacher ratio that students feel so that they're working in groups of no more than say six, eight, maybe 10 students at most. Uh, with with a teacher, and they can participate a lot more, they can speak a lot more, they can uh, teach, they can argue, they can defend, etc. And uh, the technology is great for allowing us to do that. And so they had a higher purpose, right? And the technology is used in that purpose. I think that's the right way to approach this stuff.
1: And you know, when we think about this personalized learning model, a lot of times my mind automatically jumps to the high level kids. And uh, sometimes I I get lost and forget about those low-level kids. I have a colleague, Dr. Andrea Peach, who teaches at Georgetown College, and she has a special ed course right now. They're actually using your book as a textbook in their class. Oh, wow. As I think about maybe special ed students or low-functioning students, how can a blended learning concept be utilized with those type of students in which they can have a personalized learning experience?
0: Yeah, I mean, in many ways, that's where we see it take off the most is with children that are struggling because it enables you to take a large classroom environment and essentially have an individualized learning plan for every single kid. Right. And we know with special education students, for example, uh, IEPs, individualized education plans or individualized learning plans are a big part of the system, but they're super expensive to do. And now if you can engage every single child at their right level, uh, with the right thing at the right time for each of them, you, it's a force multiplier on a teacher who's over overtaxed trying to serve all these different students. And, th- and there's a fair amount of, you know, research. J- just take a, you know, a, a, a fairly common challenge right now of ADHD, for example. Uh, if you start pitching learning at the right level, and you can allow a child to put headphones in that is is, is blasting music, so it gives their mind, you know, a couple different things to dance between. Uh, You can get some much better outcomes for that child and reach them and and you can start to represent things in a variety of ways to the digital technology and so forth. To be able to address some of the learning challenges students have Uh, we, you know, we see with dyslexia, for example, that there are lots of programs out there that help do better diagnosis can help uh, serve that student whether better and then give actionable information to the teachers so that when they're working one-on-one or in a small group of maybe three, four kids uh, w- w- with those learners, that they can understand, hey, this is where this student is struggling. This is the misconception they have right now. I'm going to get, I'm going to work on this with them right now. And so that ability to really individualize and serve everyone re- regardless of where they are, I think is a huge benefit for for students who are struggling.
1: And I think that's a great segue into um, this idea of assessment. And I've also heard you talk mm-hmm. a lot about the future of assessment and what it should look like from a competency-based learning standpoint. And really the outcomes should look a lot different than they do currently.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, look, I, I, am, I am in favor of, of transparency and accountability measures. I'm not sure we really have accountability today, but I'm in favor of the measures. But I think the measures we have right now are deeply flawed because, just to put it in a simplistic way say uh you teach the fifth grade and you have a child who comes in at the second grade math level and let's just hypothetically say that you bring that child up to the fourth grade math level so two years of absolute criterion reference growth right and then at the end of the year what does the child do he takes the fifth grade math test and he's going to look like a failure which means you're going to look like a failure that's insane right you just made two years of growth with a child which is Amazing. We should be singing from rooftops and yet the system doesn't represent that. And my argument is that when you move to a mastery based or competency based system, all of a sudden you break a lot of these trade offs because now every single child, uh, you know where they've started and you are using assessment both for and of learning, for learning to drive what they do next based on how they do in the assessment and of learning because if they master it, they move on to the next concept. And now we've represented that, right? And so we can actually move to looking at not point in time of children where we think they should be uh, based on when they were born, but actually look at individual growth of every single child, which I think is a much uh, better, more rewarding measure. And look, we don't want to dumb down expectations for kids. I get that. Uh, So we can look to individual growth. Toward certain long term targets right of what college and career readiness might might be, and uh, as long as a student is making progress toward that uh, at a pace that works for them then then I think we should feel really good about the uh, about how the system is functioning, and in many ways, it'd be way more transparent than the current system because on any given day teachers, principals, uh, people interested in the school system would know how any given child is doing because assessment is something that's built into the learning. It's not something that's separate from it.
1: My guest today is Michael Horn. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael B. Horn and also find him at his website at Michael B. Horn. He has some great resources there. So you certainly want to check that out. And you also want to check out all three books that he has uh, wherever books are sold. So You know, Michael, one of the questions that I get asked a lot as a former school superintendent now working in higher ed and doing the podcast, obviously, and I'm sure you get this a lot, too, is if you could build a school today from scratch, what would that look like? And I've heard you talk about intrinsic schools and that it costs far less to build those type of schools. They're greener. They're more purposeful. Can you talk about that philosophy a little bit in terms of school design?
0: Yeah, you know my one of my big worries when I look at across the landscape of it's just stepping back for a moment, like you said, project-based learning is growing, digital learning and blended learning is clearly growing. Educators are, are making use of these things, and when I step back and say, what could prevent us from getting to a world in which uh, students, uh, you know, we're really serving each individual student and and the right growth for them and so forth uh, to help them build passion and and, and fulfill potential, one of my big concerns is school building design, because we continue to conceptualize schools in many communities as classrooms uh, sorted by age, one teacher, many students, double-barreled hallways with lockers and the like, and it's just my observation that what you really want to do is say, look, there's going to be a variety of, of, of ways of learning, learning modalities that occur in the school, if we have a sense of what those are, projects, individual work, uh, peer-to-peer tutoring, uh, small con- conversations, etc. How can we design a school building that creates room for a lot of those and then allows not just team teaching, but co-teaching, right? Lots of adults working with, with lots of kids uh, and bouncing off each other in a much more robust way. And when you start to build those designs as Intrinsic did, uh, you realize you, you actually can get away with a much smaller school building that costs less uh, is greener to run from an energy perspective and uh, is more student-centered and so you actually create a school that isn't isn't uh, shaping people uh, by this traditional whole class notion uh, but is better for learning and is better for the environment and and our community's uh, capital expenditures and so i i worry that as we continue to build school buildings that are large with classrooms and sort of reify this industrial model that we are unintentionally trapping ourselves in that. I'll I'll give you one example because I'm in Lexington, Massachusetts, not Lexington, Kentucky, where you are. Uh, But, you know, we've had this opportunity to think about what would a new high school look like uh, recently in our community. And it was interesting because as we were doing the designs, we were pushing the bounds on a bunch of things, but then someone was like, Whoa, whoa, wait a second. But if this child's in, you know, geometry and this child's in calculus, like they can't be co-located. And it was like, well why, why not actually? because it's not about the course anymore, it's about the learning that they're doing uh because they might you know be learning online, they might learn in jagged sequences that jump back and forth between concepts, uh, and at the end of the day, you know end of the year, we can call it a certain course to help colleges understand what it means, but really it's just about progressing along competencies and having a variety of math experts, uh, teachers, (laughs) you know, there to help teach and and correct and and shape conversation and so forth around the concepts and evaluate work, uh, it could be done in an open, much more open plan, right? We don't need these arbitrary distinctions of, well, you're in honors and you're in regular and things like that. Let's just learn math and then we'll give it a name afterwards if that's important to help colleges understand it.
1: That's such good stuff. I'm fired up just hearing you talk about it. So uh, I can't thank you enough for being here for your valuable time. Again, I'm a big fan. Before I let you go, I do want to talk a little bit about your new book, uh, your 2019 book, Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life. And this is becoming, uh, you know, really the pulse of the conversation right now about uh, should kids even be investing in college with so much student loan debt? Uh, I still think there's great value in higher education, but there are a lot of people out there that don't even require college degrees anymore in the job place. So can you talk about your new book a little bit?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, the basic book is that a lot of people uh, give recommendations on where you should go or how to get in. And and some of that is unethical advice on how to get in, as we've seen from the Varsity Blues and so forth. But we think a lot of the reason for the mismatching that has occurred in, in college and, and some of the really terrible outcomes, right, that have occurred in college is where people, you know, debt isn't so much a problem if you graduate because the return is there. It's if you don't graduate and you accrue that debt, then you got real problems. And we think a lot of that is because we haven't stepped back to ask the question of why. Why are you trying to go? And if you understand your why and the progress you're trying to make in your individual circumstance, we think you can focus less on uh, sort of, you know, the, the college rat race, if you will. And what's the right fit for me? And instead of college choosing me, I'm going to choose college. And so the book is all around helping individuals, students, and parents identify what's their why. And then on the flip side of it, educators to design better pathways, uh, given this is the motivations that students are actually coming to them with. uh, How how do we take that into account as we design uh, colleges to to improve that? And so it's sort of a two-sided book to to help both educators uh, and those making the decisions. And, And my hope is that if we can make better decisions, uh, we can help higher ed innovate to better serve students. Cause I, you know, I think there's a lot of value in higher education, but when you get that bad out- outcome with the debt hanging over you, that, that is a rough thing given how expensive uh, college is today. And, and so I, we, we have to be mindful and, and and develop better pathways for students.
1: So you definitely want to put this book on your Christmas list. You can go to the website, MichaelBhorn.com. I'm sure you could pick up a copy there. Uh, and Michael, I want to give you one closing thought. We have a lot of superintendents, a lot of principals, uh, Board of Education members and obviously teachers and other educators. What advice can you give folks listening that, that's, that are thinking right now? Maybe they're in the car listening to the podcast. You know, there's something to this blended learning, uh, personalized learning approach. What can I do to get started? Uh, other than going to your website, where can folks get information?
0: Yeah, so, you know, I'd recommend like blendedlearning.org, for example, is a good resource out there. The Learning Accelerator has a lot of good resources out there about how to get started. Uh, there's a Coursera course that that Brian Greenberg and I did several years ago called Blended uh, that can start to give you some, you know, free tips and pointers. Uh, but really, I would say Embark on a conversation in your community figure out what's the team of people that need to think about this to do it well and bring them into a conversation so that together you're you're taking a design thinking approach to building the right model for, for, for your environment and the big piece of advice I will give one other worry I have in all this is make sure you bring your school community along with you for the ride. Because when we leave parents in the community behind, they're often very naturally conservative. They want school to look like it did for them. Uh, And if you help them understand the why behind what you're doing, you know, you're trying to serve every single student and make sure we don't fail any child. uh, Then I think that they will be more apt to follow along. But, but often we bring them at the end of the process when we have the what and the how, and we forget to, Uh, clue them in in the beginning on the why.
1: Well, it's been a great conversation, folks. And you want to go back and play this one a couple times because there's so many great uh, pieces of advice here from Michael Horn. And and Michael, I can't thank you enough for your time.
0: Greg, I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you again. And thanks for all that you do to help uh, uh, educators around the country design better schools. I'm super appreciative.
1: And as we wrap it up, folks, uh, always remember, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.
0: Thank you for listening to the Reimagine Schools podcast with Dr. Greg Goins. Be sure to continue the conversation on social media with the Reimagine Schools hashtag and subscribe to the
1: podcast at reimagineschools.net. You can also help support this podcast by clicking on the listener support link and making a small monthly contribution. Contact
0: Dr. Greg Goins today to invite him to speak or present at your next education conference or professional development day. Please send inquiries to Dr. Greg Goins at gmail.com or on Twitter at doctor